Let's pray to our Father together. Father in heaven, you are great and we are not. You are eternal and we tarry for but a little while. Your life, your breath, our, our life, and especially as we gather as your people in Christ, we delight in the new life you've breathed out from him to us as we trust him. Teach us about you and ourselves and our neighbors that we might love you and love our neighbor too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. not going to have you stand at this point for the scripture reading because if you've looked, it's a long chapter. And we're going to read it in sections. After some of them, I'm only going to make a, a comment or two, a couple of them uh, a little more. But I wanted to do that because... Uh, I want you to understand a lot of things. Uh, that's the heart of being a teacher uh, and a preacher. But one of the things is that uh, I hear all kinds of fun definitions, and I'm going to spend 15 seconds on this, uh, of what expository preaching is. Uh, and, uh, and I hear Christians fighting with one another over it. And one of the reasons I sometimes like to do a whole chapter is that uh, you can do expository preaching from a verse in the chapter if you put the verse in its context. Uh, you can do it, not do it, if you read a paragraph and you don't put it in its context. And sometimes it's helpful to see the big picture for a particular reason, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing this morning. Uh, unusual title, perhaps, Death is the Therapy. We don't usually think of death as therapy, but Scripture does. Uh, so that life might be received. Uh, my question for you is, through what window are you viewing and evaluating, assigning value to the world? You need to understand yourself. Uh, you need to understand the frame through which you see things. The great danger is often we see and hear and interpret things, and we're not conscious of what's affecting how we see them and how we interpret them. One of the fruits of the rise of the modern world Given industrialization, explosion of technology and medicine, manufacturing, transportation, information, and warfare, uh, is we human beings have tended to think of ourselves in new ways that we can do anything and look how fast we can do it. And we certainly can do a lot and uh, by God's gifts are able to do a lot of it fast. But this has furthered our rebel turn away from the truly transcendent. Uh, we put aside to some extent our inner hungers to know who we are and why we are and with increased mobility have more easily and rashly broken local, regional, family ties and traditions. And whether you're 70, 50, 30, or 15, you're likely to feel a good bit uprooted today. You see things constantly changing around you and things are unsettled. I remember roughly, uh, paraphrase, a quotation in the 1970s from a French philosopher, humankind has become nothing more than the sex organs to conceive its machines. 
whose technology ends up ruling us. In other words, we produce the machines so quickly that we don't even know how to be in charge of them anymore, and the sociological, technological changes run us. Again, that's why I asked you the question, what's the window, the frame from which you're interpreting things? We don't have the discipline to use wisely the very technology we've created. The late Peter Berger, one of the great, great, great uh, sociologists of the latter half of the 20th century, um, remarked with insight uh, that to the secularists' surprise, and I quote, America is like an India being presided over by a Sweden. America is like an India being presided over by a Sweden. It is like India because it's becoming so spiritual. It is like a Sweden because its cultural elites are still so wedded to the old rationalistic ways of the Enlightenment. In other words, we've got an elite like Sweden who, like Berger in his early years as a sociologist, thought that secularism would do away with religion, but surprise, surprise, in America it didn't work. We may not be becoming, more Christ, be becoming more Christian, but we are becoming more religious. We don't believe in one thing anymore, but we will believe in anything. And in a thousand different things at the same time. We haven't become less religious as the sociologists predicted, but like Francis Schaeffer predicted in the 70s, our culture seeks to force spirituality to be personally engaging as long as it's socially irrelevant. And that's the elite culture's desire. So let me quickly switch from the world or the nation to address believers in Jesus. Is our view of the world also becoming more and more fragmented or is the center still holding for you, for your family? or how you see this congregation of believers. David Wells, longtime theology prophet, Gordon Conwell Seminary in Boston, in a really important 1990s book he wrote, tells of a first-day theology student in one of his classes at the seminary, wondering aloud to him after class if he, the student, was, quote, right to spend so much money on a course of study, theology, that was so irrelevant to his desire to minister to the people in the church? Real question from a real student at Gordon-Conwell. Wells remarks, such a concern would have been incomprehensible to most generations of Christians that have preceded us. As I pondered what text to preach from this week and next, uh, my last two Sundays with you, uh, I decided to preach twice from 1 Corinthians 15. Today I want to focus on Christ's Apostle Paul's proclamation of the center that gives believers a place to stand against all the forces, pulling us away from transcendence, from Christ, from the triune God. Trying to reach our neighbors. Uh, Evangelical Christians in my 50 years, oh, did I say that, of ministry since uh, coming full-time on crew staff in 1969, uh, I've watched evangelicals uh, 
try to build the church by marketing techniques, some of them good, by shaping seeker-sensitive services, by becoming attractional, uh, being so careful to be winsome in all we do in worship, and there are good things in all of those things. With the postmodern focus of our days, everything coming unglued from the center, a focus on the autonomous individual, we've intentionally, the church, uh, intentionally or not, we've disconnected the gospel from things which God's Word says are connected to it. We rightly desire to have only the gospel offend, but I think you will see, even though I'm not going to emphasize it in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, that this chapter about the essence of the gospel and the things of first importance includes things that the evangelical church has not wanted to include in the gospel. We want to keep the gospel just simple. Jesus loves you and He died for you and He offers you forgiveness and all you got to do is accept Him and be forgiven. Now, all what I said is true, but even in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says more than that. We are to love our neighbors, most of all, I would suggest, by being the one voice in the world that connects revelation and morality and the source in God's Word that critiques us first, the church first. For judgment, Scripture says, begins with us, but it also critiques everything in the world. And I think one of the reasons the church in many quarters is taken less and less seriously, is we try to frame everything that we believe so nicely that it doesn't offend the world. Well, guess what? You can't teach the Bible well and not offend Christians. I hope I've offended some of you this year. If I haven't, I'm not going to ask to do it over, but I ask you to read the Word more. And if God doesn't offend the world, then they're not looking and listening to the real God. The gospel is not small. Believers are to see the world through Christ. We know Christ through the apostolic word preached, strange thing that is, and written that truly tells us about God, and it's the only word worth preaching. The gospel's not small, but it's about the one who made us, who came to us, who defines us, why he is the one who has to forgive us, and why he himself is our hope. The issue before the world is God's promise of death. The Bible starts with it, His promise of death to us in Genesis 3. There's a promise of life, but there's a promise of judgment, of death. So God brought a new life because the issue is death. His incarnate Son in whom alone we could find new life. So death in Christ is the therapy so that life might, not, might be received. Next week, we'll look from 1 Corinthians 15 at the person of Jesus and His work. And I promise you, as we look at what's explicit in the chapter and what's assumed, we'll look at how the person and work of Christ applies very practically to every season of life, whether you're 5 or 10 or 75 or 95. There's practical application. But the application must be based on the incarnational realities. It's not just therapeutic truth to make us feel better about ourselves. In fact, for it to be the real truth of Scripture, it's got to make us feel worse about ourselves. You know, I've got some good news and some good news. The first good news is that you're a whole lot worse than you think you are, Jack Miller used to say. And the second good news is that God and 
in his grace towards you as your creator and definer is a whole lot more gracious than you ever dreamed he could be. And we'll see how true that is from this chapter next week. So as we move ahead, uh, I want you to be sure to know I'm not aware, I am aware that not everyone listening this morning in this room or streaming uh, is ready to receive what Scripture says as the very Word of God. In fact, Steve's teaching a class on Sunday mornings as to why the Bible is trustworthy. Questions are always welcome, and most of us still have questions, and we'll have some next year we didn't know we had. We don't ask anyone to believe the Bible because UPC says so or the PCA says so. We call you to the Bible because we know from our knowledge of God from the preached Word and the written Word, that God meets people in His Word in incredible and special ways. We're about God Himself and being known by Him more than we are about our church or our denomination or anything else. But the remarkable thing that we believe in that is that the Word of God that we preach is like nothing else that the world has ever or will ever see. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, section 5. 2, 5, if you're taking notes. I love these words. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scriptures. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the word of God is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. That's the truth that every officer in this PCA and any other PCA church ascribes to. That we're about the God of the Bible even more than the Bible. And it's because of how God makes Himself known that we take the Bible and the theology of the Bible so seriously. And we are foolish enough like the apostles to believe that no matter how crazy and unglued the world becomes, the one thing that will bring many people across the gap to faith in Jesus Christ is this silly preaching of the Word like I'm doing this morning. That somehow in ways that preachers don't even begin to understand, God is at work, whether it's in a living room or a hospital room or a Church worship center when the Word of God is formally or informally preached. And so I want very, very quickly to walk you through this first heading on the outline. The gospel of God is the window for seeing your world. Put on your seatbelts. We're going to move fast. A summary statement. These are on your outline of verses 1 through 11. This is the gospel Paul and the other apostles preached which believers receive, in which we stand, and by which we are being saved if we hold fast to the word preached. Listen, 
to these first 11 verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the gospel, to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Paul says the first importance, verse 3, Christ died for our sins as promised. That means prophecies. And Christ was buried. He was really dead. Christ was raised bodily on the third day as promised, meaning prophesied ahead of time. Christ bodily appeared to many. The apostles and others preached this word, and by God's working, people believe. That's the core thought in those first 11 verses. Verses 12 through 19, summary statement. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised bodily from the dead and appeared is not mere psychological comfort, but is God's work and historical reality. Therefore, we die to the world's evaluations, and we live as a new community with a sure hope that goes beyond this age. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's argument is saying that those that want therapeutic truth that's not grounded in reality are just like he says believers would be if Christ hadn't been raised. Most to be pities because it's all in our heads. It's all personally engaging. But it's socially irrelevant because it doesn't have broad truth in it. Death is the therapy. Christ's death which condemns all who have life only from the flesh. But Christ's resurrection and life in Christ, you can find a new kind of life that begins now and continues when heaven and earth are made new. Verses 20 to 28. told you I was going to move fast. The reality of God's judgment, the summary of death on Adam and all his descendants has practical and eternal consequences. One, the shades of death and darkness corrupt and mar the best of our earthly births, beautiful longings, and fruitful labors, the wonderful things God does let us do. And two, in Adam all die, as Paul says, and at Christ Jesus' second coming, it is only those who belong to Christ who shall be made alive. Note, all die in Adam, 
But those who are made alive at Christ's second coming are those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ. Listen to the words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all, and I remind you that it doesn't say something else. It says that God, triune, Father, Son, and Spirit together may be all in all because the incarnation's main ministry will then be complete. The problem was death, so God sent a life in which you could gain new life. The death in Adam has immediate consequences without God's intervening grace. You want one reminder of that right now as we try to hide transcendence and think that we are autonomous individuals that get to live according to our own desires and define everything? How's that working out? Some of the most recent studies in America show that the second cause of death Second leading cause of death amongst 15 to 34-year-olds in America is now suicide. The second leading cause of death of 15 to 34-year-olds in America is now suicide. I can't bear out the exact accuracy of that, but if it's even close, and we know it's been increasing tremendously, we shouldn't be surprised. Because when you unroot man from who he is, men and women, boys and girls, from who they were created to be, and they become having to define everything and create everything from themselves, chaos comes. Verses 29 to 34, those who love the world as it is, broken, rebellious, will not of themselves accept Christ Jesus and his message of death and new life. We as believers have to learn to walk with discernment and wisdom, which only comes from Christ who became wisdom to us. We have to walk in close fellowship with those who have knowledge of God from the word preached, and that's necessary to stay awake to your hope in Christ. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour as apostles? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I can't begin to go into any real teaching about the words baptized on behalf of the dead. We don't know enough about Paul's context to be sure. Two quick comments. One, Paul's argument is clear regardless of the setting. Whatever this outward act of baptism describes, only if Christ is truly bodily raised from the dead does it make any sense. We know that's what Paul's saying. Secondly, I comment this. 
the understanding of the large majority of the early Greek-speaking church fathers. Early church, all the Greek-speaking places, this is what almost all the bishops taught. They said that this practice was really the, the baptism practiced in the church in view, that we are baptized because we are dead in our flesh. Why do we get baptized when we come to faith if we weren't marked as a covenant child in England? Because we've learned that we're dead in our sins, and we're baptized because we're dead to identify ourselves with Christ's cleansing and the hope. And if Christ isn't raised, then there's no point in that baptism. That's what the early Greek fathers taught. There are a lot of other views, about 30 or 40. Want me to go into them? No. Quickly, on to something which in order to be winsome and be sure uh, we're seen as preaching grace. Many have disconnected from the gospel, as I said. Uh, did you notice that our behavior is directly tied to the gospel and the resurrection and implications in the verses I just read? We are crucified, co-resurrected in Christ's death, and rising is rising, that we might be reconciled to God and live as image bearers in His ways. If He loves me, if you love me, Jesus said, if your affections are toward me and your new life in me, you will obey my commandments. We need people around us who know the truth from Scripture, who sit under the teaching of the Scripture to stay awake, dare I say, to be woke, to the reality of life in Christ. Or Scripture says you will go to sleep and be foolish if the Word of God isn't keeping you awake to view your world through that reality. Verse 35, we willingly, daily, mortify, discipline the desires of our earthly life, our body, knowing its fruit and future bear death without Christ. Our motivation is the assurance that by the work of Christ and His Spirit, we will be raised with a new body fit for the new creation and bearing the image of the man of heaven. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. What is, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we were born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus said, love yourself for my sake. Lose yourself, rather. But it's good to love yourself for his sake, too, and in his way. Lose yourself for my sake. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Paul, by the Spirit, wrote Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Last section, verses 50 to 58. Summary, at the coming of Christ, our death will be transformed into victory. Our perishable into imperishable. Our mortal body will put on immortality. Therefore, hold to the preached and written word, being steadfast and movable, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I tell you, brothers, this, tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor is not your labor is not in vain. And your neighbor's not in vain either, by the way. Which is why we're coming to the Lord's table in communion. In the very last couple of minutes I've got here before we move to the table, I want to show you that, uh, I mean, it's not surprising, is it? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, the chapter about communion, is in 1 Corinthians. And it is followed by 1 Corinthians 15, which is this culmination of the implications of Christ's death and His resurrection. So as we think about what's most important in the Lord's Supper, the preached word about it, the word of the gospel at the table of our Lord, communion is a window also to see our world. I read just verses 11 through 2011, uh, chapter 11, 27 through 29. They're printed on your bulletin outline. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those who mortify, who discipline the bent desires of the earthly body and seek new life we do that today in a special way. We seek new life by reminding ourselves that Christ bodily died and bodily rose and bodily ascended, and by faith we feed on Him. Not that His body is in these elements or under these elements, but the spiritual reality of the living Christ is here with His church, not just as a memorial, but a living spiritual outpouring of the Spirit. We'll talk about that next week that we feed on the life of Christ. And if you look back at what we don't have time to teach, the earlier part of chapter 11, you see that Paul rebukes this church in the paragraphs before for their divisions, for their factions. They deconstruct the Lord's Supper, making it about their individual desires and wanting to feel spiritual. They deconstruct the church into subgroups, the haves and the have-nots. Some are wealthy, some are not. Some are drinking 
uh, eating a feast in front of brothers who were going hungry. Some were drinking too much wine, likely displaying their freedom in Christ, that they can have a lot of wine, they're free. And others are going hungry. And Paul says, you don't even understand the gospel. Because the gospel says you see the world as a new body of people who are different because they've heard the living Word of God and have come to define the body of Christ as, 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 as important and in some ways more important than their earthly families. I need to be quick with this, but one of the things that breaks my heart when I think of the things that broke up life groups and others in this church is the weakness of leaders and people to not see that more, that more important than the individual interpretations of events by particular pastors or elders or life group leaders is the reality we've been talking about this morning. And you can't fix that quick, but you can prepare for your future. You can say that church bodies are not to be places we just attend. But they are to be a place where we bear our souls because we know how rotten we are all anyway. I mean, if you admit you need the gospel, your brothers and sisters know that you've admitted you're rotten. You don't want to know my darkest thoughts, and I don't want to tell most of them to most of you. But I need some people I can tell them to. And I need a body that can do that. Our families need, our marriages need people in the church who don't evaluate us the way the world evaluates people, but who know they share in the life of the Lord Jesus together, and He's not shocked by any of it. Because this is the heart of everything, the things of first importance. Believer or skeptic, struggling disciple or attracted questioner, I call you to die with me and to find life with me in Jesus. I call you to Christ's body because when Jesus calls you to himself, he calls you to his messy people because you're messy. And I call you to make less of your private desires and your personal reputations and be concerned more about the reputation of Christ and his church. And anybody that leaves one church because it's messy and runs to another because they're not messy, do I even need to say it? This table is for sinners. This table is for rebels who are being called back to the Lord who with open arms on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. If Jesus is that to us, can we be that to those who've hurt us? Can we be that to those who've hurt us in our families? Can we be that to those who've hurt us in the church? You hang around the church, you're going to get hurt. Guess what? Because people in the church believe things and they're trying to do it right. <laughs> but I'd rather get hurt there than anywhere else. Because we have somewhere to go with our hurt. And we can go together. In my mind's eye, I'm picturing a communion service at a church that I helped plant in Tulsa where the former 
wife of a PCA pastor friend of mine. He sinned greatly against her and the family and didn't repent. And I'm picturing her with the young woman he sinned with who was a close friend of the family going arm in arm up to the Lord's table together and only about half the church knew what happened. But those half said, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. And they're still friends today. Because of Jesus. And so I preach to you nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Let's go to the table. Would you stand and say with me the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Be seated, please. We've read the words of institution already. I'm not going to reread them from 1 Corinthians 11. Isn't it amazing that Jesus took bread and wine, basic sustenance of life, and said, as you think of that in regular life, think of the reality that more than all that food, you need to stay awake to the reality of your new life, co-crucified and co-resurrected in Christ, that one day, Romans 8, you're going to be fully adopted and get a new body. And so you eat and drink, not because you're a member of this congregation or of the PCA, but because you've affirmed the Lord Jesus Christ in his church, in a believing body, and you say, I discern the body and blood of Christ in the elements, and I discern